0: Well, it's better than last service. Last service, I gave Warren the wrong passage to read, and I'm standing up here thinking, oh man, did I prepare the wrong sermon today? <laughs> it was a bad, bad, bad way to start. But uh, come back. I told everybody, hey, come back next week, and you'll hear someone else preach on that. <laughs> it's actually next week's passage. So, uh, hey, my name John. I'm one of your pastors, and it is great to see you all. Um, I hope you've had a great summer so far as we've been in our season of worship and wonder. That you've been able to experience worship and wonder this summer and if you're like me uh, that worship and wonder has turned into worshiping and wondering if hell has taken over (laughs) phoenix in july (laughs) i'm like man i'm born and raised here and i like the heat but it is some next level hot right now i'm seeing on instagram some of you guys are frying eggs in your uh windshield of your car a couple others of you are making cookies soft-baked cookies i'm like man this is this is it uh, thank the Lord we have air conditioning. <laughs> oh, man. Um, well, hey, we're going to be continuing our series in First John this morning. And so uh, get ready to dive in. Have you ever doubted your salvation because of the sin in your life? A number of years ago, about 12 years ago, before I was a pastor, I had a really close friend of mine. Um, who was a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and he and I would hang out. We'd get together. We were working out. Um, That was when I still worked out. You probably couldn't tell that I work out now, but um, there was a time, and uh, we would go and eat breakfast burritos after we'd work out and just talk about life, and my friend was struggling with a specific sin in his life, and his sin was making him begin to doubt his salvation. I'm not going to name this sin. I'll just leave it blank and you can fill it in with whatever the struggle is that you have. But the reason why he was doubting his salvation was because he would read passages in the Bible like the one we are looking at in 1 John chapter 3 today, where John writes, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And this passage caused a lot of tension for him. And maybe you're here and you are like my friend. This raises the question for us. If you continue to sin, does that mean you're not saved? And so get out your Bibles or your app on your phone. Turn to First John chapter 3. And we're going to see what John has to say here. But before we do that, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this time and space as we gather together as your people. Jesus, we wanna worship you this morning, but we wanna hear from you. And as we open your word, we ask that your spirit would speak to us and move in our midst. Amen. Okay, uh, we're looking at verses four through 10 this morning. And so uh, you can follow along, it'll also be on the screen. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. So the first thing John's saying in this passage is that if you are a child of God, you cannot remain in sin because sin is incompatible with Christ. It's important how we handle this passage. John starts out of the gates in verse 4 by saying everyone who makes a practice of sinning. Practice and understanding what this means is important because Practice isn't unintentional. Practice is deliberate. When you practice something, you are deliberately doing that thing, oftentimes to even get better at it. With musical instruments, you practice. My son plays guitar and he practices guitar. Every sports team practices, whether it's basketball, baseball, football, doesn't matter, you practice. And you're deliberately doing that thing. What John says here, by practice of sinning, He's talking about a lifestyle that is characterized by deliberate, persistent, habitual sin. John is not trying to make the church doubt their salvation. But he wants the church to see and understand the incompatibility of a life of deliberate sin. It's incompatible for being a follower of Christ. And it's crucial that we understand this that John is not talking about the absence of sin in our lives. He is not talking about sinless perfectionism here. He is not saying that if you sin, you're not saved. That's not what he's saying. And we know that because if he is saying that, he directly contradicts himself what he said earlier in 1 John in his letter in chapter 1. Because in 1 John chapter 1, he says this in verse 8. He says... If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then in verse 10, he says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And so how do we make sense of what John is saying in chapter 1 and what he's saying in our passage today in chapter 3? Well, if you remember from our series throughout 1 John, we've pretty much been preaching on it in about every sermon, that John is combating false teaching that was prevalent during that time. This false teaching was known as Gnosticism, and Gnosticism led to two different dominant beliefs and two different conclusions. You could think of kind of two different streams of Gnosticism. The first stream led to this belief that you could be perfect. And what John is doing in chapter one with those verses I just read, John is directly combating this Gnostic belief that you could be perfect. And so he's saying, no, you can't. If you say you haven't sinned, you deceive yourself and you actually make God out to be a liar. And then there's this other Gnostic belief. The other thing that Gnosticism led to was this idea that they believed that sin didn't matter if you were enlightened and you reached this state of what was known as Gnosis, And what John is doing in chapter three in our passage today is he's addressing that Gnostic belief and he's saying, no, sin does matter. And if you sin, it's actually incompatible with Christ. It matters. You cannot just deliberately sin as if it doesn't matter. And so throughout 1 John, what John is doing is he's saying, hey, both of these Gnostic teachings are wrong and they're false. He wants the church to know that making sin a normal, accepted way of life is incompatible with following Jesus. And then he says, here's why it's incompatible. He continues in verse four. He says, sin is lawlessness. And oftentimes in in the Bible, when we hear the law, we think of the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law. That's not what John's talking about here. He's talking about something different. Lawlessness could be defined this way as the theologian and prominent author, John Stott, defines it. He says, lawlessness is defiant violation of God's moral law. What that means is that sin does not just disregard God's law, but the very nature of sin in and of itself is lawlessness, which means lawlessness is not a result of sin. It's what it is. John's using this language because he's exposing the severity of sin because oftentimes... Sin is defined as missing the mark. And yes, the word translated definition means missing the mark. But what John is saying is sin is much more severe than just missing a mark. It's an act of rebelling against God's will, his work, and his ways in the world. But John continues. He says, Hey, it's not just lawlessness, it's even worse. In verse 8, he says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. He says, hey, the nature of sin is lawlessness, but it originated with Satan. And he says, here's why sin is incompatible with Christ, because it's actually compatible with Satan. Lawlessness is the way of the devil. His rebellion against God has defined his existence. It's all he does. He has a career of sin. And so if we were to see a highlight reel of Satan's career all you would see is horrific acts of sin against God and humanity in the world. It would be horrific. John says, hey, if you make your life about practicing sin, you're actually emulating the devil because lawlessness is derived from him and it is incompatible with being a child of God. And I love being a pastor. It's one of the joys of my life. I love this church. I love all of you. And it's a lot of fun. And you get to see God move and do amazing things. But I will be honest, one of the saddest parts of my job that I absolutely hate is when you see people deliberately choose sin instead of Jesus. And I remember meeting with this guy, A while ago, and he had actually reached out to me. He expressed that he wanted to meet because he's going through some stuff, and he wanted help, and he was in a lot of pain. He was depressed, and he had a lot of stuff going on, and so we began meeting, and I met with this guy for a long time, for about a year, and we were meeting on a regular basis, trying to process through his struggles, and what began to be exposed was that he was deliberately sinning in a lot of different ways, deliberately sinning sexually with sexual sin. He was self-medicating with a lot of destructive things, including substance abuse. He was significantly mistreating and hurting the people around him, even people who were closest with him. And as we would meet and we'd talk, he didn't think that his sin was a problem. He didn't think that it was incompatible with Christ, and so he didn't repent. He continued to live this way. And when push came to shove, tragically, it revealed a lot about him. No repentance, a long-standing persistence of sin in his life that ultimately led him to walking away from community, walking away from the church, walking away from Jesus altogether because he was deceived about sin. And it is heartbreaking. It's tragic when you watch someone deliberately sin because it's just so destructive, which is why John says here, let no one deceive you. Church, don't be deceived about sin. Deliberate sin is incompatible with Christ. It is diabolical. It's defiant. It's damaging. It's destructive. It's deceptive. And it only leads to death. But the problem is, today, there are ways that you are deceived about sin. You're deceived by society and you're deceived by yourself society, deceived by society, we live in a societal moment that has made sin comfortable in almost every way, shape, and form. And the deception of sin desensitizes you to sin. And this has happened in our society in many ways, but in one very important way is that language has changed. And here's what I mean by that. Language is important. But the language of sin has disappeared in our society. The language of sin has completely disappeared. There is no category for sin in our society. And the language has been changed. And the reason why this is deceptive and destructive is that now many of you use the same kind of language. It's now the way that the church oftentimes talks. I didn't commit adultery. I had an affair. I didn't break God's law and steal. I was caught up in fraud. I was not impatient. I was overwhelmed at work. I'm not bitter and filled with hate towards those people. They just needed to be removed from my life because they are toxic. I'm not discontent with God. I just... Need the latest, newest thing that I saw my friend had on Instagram. But it's not just the language in our society, but you also deceive yourselves about sin. And this is oftentimes how how this plays out in the church. It's this understanding of what could be called cheap grace, that it cheapens the grace of God. And here's how this goes. Like, hey, you know what? I'm never going to be perfect, right? John literally just said that we're not going to be perfect. We're never going to be sinless. And so, you know what? I know I'm always going to sin. I'm always going to struggle with some stuff. You know, I know it's wrong, but it's not actually lawlessness, and it's definitely not emulating Satan, like what John's saying here. That's a little too harsh, right? It's definitely not that. And so, you know what? I think it's okay. I'm just going to keep doing this because, ah, you know what? I know the grace of Jesus covers it. And it then ends up cheapening the grace of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul addresses this in the New Testament. And he says, hey, do you go on sinning so that grace may abound? No. He's saying that's an abuse of grace. Or another way that we get deceived is, you know, this language of kind of like, hey, this is just how I am. You know, I I took the Enneagram assessment. I read a book on it. And, you know, I'm I'm an Enneagram 7. And you know what? This is just how I am, and you got to deal with it. And when I'm not operating out of my best self, this is what comes out of me, and you just need to deal with it. And you laugh, right? Like there's chuckles because here's the thing. We've heard it a lot. And the problem is that when you are deceived about sin, you will make it a part of your diet and treat it like junk food in moderation instead of treating it like cancer and destroying it. Yeah. That guy's like, he's like, I hate junk food. (laughs) Uh. But here's the thing. If you don't destroy it, it will destroy you. Because with sin, it's not about moderation. The practice of sinning is incompatible with Christ, which is why John says, don't be deceived, because he knows a lot is at stake. So my question for you is, Where do you find yourself being deceived about sin? Because if deliberate sin is incompatible with Christ, how can you practice something different? John continues in verse 5. He says, You know that he appeared, that's Christ, he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And then in verse 8, he says, Uh, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The next thing John's saying in this passage is that if you are a child of God, you cannot remain in sin because Christ rescued you from it. This is why Christ appeared, John says. And last week, Warren preached and he did an excellent job and he was preaching on the future appearing of Christ to be prepared for the future appearing. But what John is saying in our passage today is this is why Christ originally came, why he first came. And he says he came to take away sins. Tells us that Christ is the sinless one in whom there was no sin and he came to remove our sin, which means his whole purpose for coming on his rescue mission was to do something about sin, do something about lawlessness in the world and in us. Jesus stands opposed to sin, and he's so opposed to it that the sinless son of God came to deal with it through the agony of the cross. John in his gospel in chapter one of the gospel of John tells us this about Jesus. He says, Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that his blood cleanses us. His blood removes our sin. And oftentimes, this can be referred to as the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. But John says this so that we know that if sin is opposition to God, Jesus stands in opposition to sin, and we know that because the whole reason Jesus came was to destroy it. And he tells us in verse 8, this is why he came, to destroy the works of the devil, that's kind of weird. The works of the devil. What what are the works of the devil? Oftentimes that's super confusing. We don't know what those are. The works of the devil are many. John tells us in the Gospel of John that Satan does three things he steals, kills, and destroys. And he is trying to do that with everything good God has for you, for the church, and in the world. What he is up to is he's actively trying to thwart God's kingdom from advancing. And so, yes, Satan is active in the world today, and his works are working against every area of your life to steal, kill, and destroy. Spiritually, to entice you, to tempt you to sin, to deceive you, what we're talking about here, to instill doubt in you that you would be like Adam and Eve who asked the question, well, did God really say? Physically, to inflict pain, sickness, self harm, death. Relationally, he's trying to destroy your marriage, to destroy your family, to create generational trauma, and to divide the church. Mentally and emotionally, he wants you to be trapped in a cycle of shame, to feel self hatred, to feel depressed and utterly in despair. So as you hear that, you're thinking, well, shoot, are his works actually destroyed? Because it doesn't really seem like it. Because when I look around or even my own life or lives of those around me, this stuff still seems to be running rampant. It's important that we understand the word destroyed here. What John is getting at is destroyed does not mean annihilated. Destroyed means defeated. The works of the devil have been defeated. They've been conquered. They've been overthrown. But the devil is still busy in the world. But guess what? He's been disarmed. He's been defeated. And he has been dethroned through the death blows that Jesus delivered him through the cross, resurrection, and ascension. Yes. And so now, Satan operates this way. We all know that wounded animals are dangerous. They're far more dangerous because they are wounded and they know they're going to die. And so they are fierce and they'll lash out to take down and hurt anyone they can on their way out. Satan is like a wounded animal who is thrashing around, who has only gotten more fierce because he's trying to survive, but he knows that his time is coming to an end. Because Jesus is the victorious one who has the power to rescue and restore. It's what he came to do in the first place. And church, it's what he is still doing today in our midst. A few years ago, a couple from our church, they were in crisis. They'd been married for several years. But those years were unhealthy, ungodly. And that led to a lot of pain, deep pain in their marriage and in their lives. And that pain tragically led to one of them stepping outside of their marriage and committing adultery. Their marriage and family were on the brink of being ripped apart, on the brink of being destroyed because of deep betrayal, gut-wrenching pain unspeakable anger and it seemed like a hopeless situation but together they cried out for help. They knew that Jesus was their only hope in the all-encompassing brokenness when it felt like they were drowning and they began this journey and process of counseling that involved their community here in our church that involved intentional prayer and prayer ministry, doing deep, long, hard work, and yet through that process, Jesus was with them every step of the way, and as I got the opportunity to meet with them and to walk with them, I watched Jesus destroy the works of the devil by giving them the ability to forgive one another, because By Jesus willingly absorbing the pain on the cross, it enabled them to absorb the pain that they had caused one another and actually be able to forgive. Because they received the grace of Jesus, they were able to extend grace to one another. Because Jesus pursued them when they were far off and when they were his enemies, they were able to pursue one another and actually move towards one another instead of away from one another and move towards healing. The works of the enemy didn't have the final word because they walked in repentance, and Jesus rescued them from the ways that sin could destroy their marriage, their family, and their lives. Church, Jesus restored them, and by his grace and by his power, this family is a part of our church worshiping with us on Sunday mornings today. It's amazing. It's amazing, which is why John says, don't be deceived. Christ has rescued you, and he has rescued you from sin and the works of the devil. But Satan wants to deceive you. He's called the great deceiver for a reason. He wants to deceive you. That's his chief tactic. He wants you to think that you are trapped. He wants you to think that you are powerless, that you are alone, that you are hopeless, that God has abandoned you and left the building. He wants you to feel trapped in despair. But in those moments, Jesus speaks a louder and better word. And he says, I came to take away sin and destroy the works of the devil. I came to rescue you so you are no longer a slave to fear. You're no longer a slave to shame. You're no longer a slave to sin and to death. Because where Satan steals, kills, and destroys, Jesus saves, heals, and restores. some of you who are sitting in this room are going through it right now. And I know it. And it's hard for you to wake up to come to church this morning. Might be hard for you to sing. It's hard for you to sit through this sermon. And you're going through it right now and it feels like the works of the devil are wreaking havoc in your life. And you're sitting here asking, God, where are you in the midst of my circumstances? Where are you? And what he wants you to know is that he hears you. He hasn't abandoned you. He is with you. He's holding on to you. And he will bring you through it. He'll bring you through it. And so he's saying, cling to me. There are some of you, though, who are here this morning, and you've experienced the rescuing power of God in your life, and I want to encourage you this morning to worship Jesus out of gratitude for that. And not just worship Jesus, but share your story with other people, because one of the ways that God speaks truth in the midst of deception is through other people. It's the power of story. But There are others of you who are here this morning, and you've never been rescued from your sin. And you found yourself here for whatever reason in this sanctuary and you're listening to this sermon and you feel stuff stirring in you and you're wondering, is there a way out? Is there a way that I cannot feel this way? Is there a way to be free? Is there a way to stop doing this? And is there a way that I could be healed? Jesus has an invitation for you this morning, which is turn to him and he will rescue you as you experience his transformative power. And if that's you this morning, come find me after the sermon, find any of the pastors. We've got prayer teams on both sides of the stage. We would love to pray with you and talk with you. But Christ has rescued you from sin. But the question is, what then sustains you? Verse nine. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. She's John, man, he's laying down some harsh words for us. Last thing John's saying here in this passage is that if you are a child of God, you cannot remain in sin because his spirit remains in you. And he says... Coming out in verse nine, born of God, everyone who has been born of God. And then he also says, who God's seed abides in. Born of God and God's seed are getting out the same thing. What those things mean is that God is your father. And you have received a new nature because you have been born again by the life-giving power of God. In John's theology through the gospel of John and these letters, the seed that is being talked about here is the Holy Spirit in whom gives new birth and new life. It comes from the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. And if you have God's seed in you, that means you are a child of God and his Holy Spirit lives in you. And if you are his child, you will resemble him more because children resemble their parents. And there is no one who understands this better than progressive Yeah, you guys have seen it. I was waiting. They have an entire marketing campaign on how to not become like your parents. We've all seen the commercials. I know if you watch basketball, it's like every commercial, there's like five of these progressive commercials on. But here's the thing, progressive gets it. And they've got a whole marketing campaign on, hey, how to not become like your parents. And it's funny and we laugh at it, but we all know you become and resemble your parents. And what John is saying is, the Holy Spirit is in you, that spirit will make you resemble your heavenly father more and more. I remember uh, the first time that I met Mark King. If you don't know Mark King, he's on our staff here. His picture will be up here. Yeah, that's Mark. He looks like Jimmy Neutron right here. He's got (laughs) Jimmy Neutron hair. Um, But that's Mark. And uh, I remember the first time I met Mark. And it was shortly after he became a Christian, and uh, we went out to breakfast together, and I remember Mark was like, you know, he was this young punk dude who was pretty sure of himself, honestly, if we're just being honest. And he was pretty sure of himself, kind of a punk, but the thing was, he told me this amazing story of how he had just gotten saved at a rave, and I'm like, pfft. Wow, that's wild, bro. You might be the only dude I know that met Jesus with a glow stick sucking on a pacifier. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Mark. Yeah, wherever you are, I know he's in here. (laughs) Um, But here's the thing about Mark. I could tell that the Spirit of God was in him and that he had truly experienced new life. And over the years, I've seen Mark go from this pretty sure of himself young punk who wasn't married, who didn't have kids, and who wasn't a pastor, to growing into a mature godly man who's someone that I really respect, who's younger than me, who's now a husband. He's a father, and he's one of our pastors. He's our youth pastor. If you are here a few weeks ago, you even got to hear him preach. And I share this because all of this happened in Mark's life because the Spirit of God has been at work in him enabling him to forsake sin and make him resemble God more and more. And in the same way, if you are a child of God, the spirit of God remains in you and you cannot keep practicing sin because you will resemble your heavenly father more and more. This happens because the very presence and power of Jesus is in you. The Holy Spirit enables you to say no to your ways and yes to God's ways in the world. The Holy Spirit in you transforms you, which means that you have a growing distaste for sin. What used to look good doesn't look good anymore. You have new appetites and new desires. Your desires change and they align with God's desires more and more because you will resemble him, which means... If you are here today and you are a follower of Jesus, I guarantee you are not sinning like you once were. I want you to think about this. What is an area of your life that looks different than it used to because of the Holy Spirit? Reflect back right now on what God has done in your life. What is an area of your life that looks different than it used to because of the Holy Spirit. Take a moment and think about that. But I don't just want you to look back and reflect, also look forward. And the question is, what is an area of your life that you want to look different? Because of the Holy Spirit in you. And what I want you to do right now is I want you to take a moment and actually ask the Holy Spirit to do that thing. To take a moment and pray. What is the area of your life that you want to look different because of the Holy Spirit? What do you want him to do in you? Take a moment and pray and ask him to do that. For every one of us, the invitation this morning is to Jesus, the one who came to deal with the incompatibility of your sin on the cross so that you could become a child of God through his life-giving spirit. And so as we get ready to take communion this morning, these elements represent our very rescue. the bread represents Christ's body that was freely given for us, The wine or the juice represents Christ's blood that was shed for us. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, this meal is for you. If you're here and you don't know Jesus by your own words, the invitation is that you would come and experience the rescuing power of God today. And we'll be at on both sides of the stage. Come, receive prayer, talk with us. But that's the invitation this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, Thank you for your love that you have for us. Lord, thank you that you are alive, that you are present among us, that you are speaking and moving in this place. Jesus, we thank you that you have rescued us from a life of sin, Lord, that is completely incompatible with you. And Lord, that you haven't just rescued us, you've given us new life through your spirit and now your spirit is in us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would grow us, that we would resemble you more and more, that we could be your faithful witnesses today. Jesus, we thank you for your kindness towards us. Lord, we thank you that we get to worship you now because you are deserving of our praise. And so, Lord, we pray that that you would be honored in our midst, Lord, we're so grateful for this time that we get to worship you together, amen.